I pay homage to the Buddha. I pay homage to the Dhamma. I pay homage to the Sangha. Well, I hope everyone's doing well today. Uh, it's a pleasure to see you or your thumbnail uh, on Zoom. Hopefully one day I'll get to see you and or your thumbnail in person. Um, so today uh, I have a particular theme in mind. Um, over the, the last few years I've been asked a series of questions that all uh, sometimes seem to me to be a, a very similar question, perhaps the same question, which is, how do I know I'm making progress on the path? And so that's the theme I want to explore today. How do we know we're making progress? Now, there are a lot of ways to go about answering this, a lot of ways we can investigate. But what I think is most fruitful is to take a step back and really understand why we're on the path in the first place. To have any measure of success or failure, to me it seems, you got to know why you're doing something in the first place. So with that in mind, I want to discuss the uh, Devadaha Sutta. That's from the, I believe that's Sanyutta Nikaya uh, 22.2. And so in this particular sutta, it begins with uh, a contingent of monks, a big group of monks that are looking to travel abroad, basically travel to, uh, to other territories where the Buddha's teachings were unknown. And so in this sutta, these monks approach the Buddha and tell him their plans that they want to go off to further territories in the subcontinent of India and go to places where the Buddha's teachings are unknown. And the Buddha nods and he says, okay, this is good. But I feel though that you should inform Sariputta. Have you informed him? And the monks say, no, Lord, we haven't informed Venerable Sariputta. And then the Buddha says, inform Sariputta, monks. Sariputta is wise, a great help to the monks who are his companions in the holy life. And so these monks in a big group go and walk towards where Sariputta was. And at the time, Sariputta was meditating under a tree. And they approach Sariputta, they exchange greetings and pleasantries, catching up as monks do, as anyone does, and they tell Sariputta the news, that they're planning on moving somewhere where the Buddha's teachings are unknown. And it's when he hears this, the Sariputta says, friends, in foreign lands there are wise nobles and Brahmins, householders and contemplatives. For the people there are wise and, discri and discriminating who will question a monk, what is your teacher's doctrine? What does he teach? Have you listened well to the teachings, grasped them well, attended to them well, considered them well, penetrated them well by means of discernment? 
so that in answering you will speak in line with what the Blessed One has said, will not misrepresent the Blessed One with what is unfactual, will answer in line with the Dhamma, and no one whose thinking is in line with the Dhamma will have grounds to criticize you. And after posing this question to them, the monks pause, and they look at each other, and then they say, you know, Sariputta, you're, you're so wise that we can imagine people walking from very far away to hear your teachings. So rather than us tell you, how about you tell us, All right? Which is very, very wise of those monks in question, sort of dodge the bullet there and have Sariputta answer instead. And then so Sariputta obliges. He says, all right, I'll tell you. Please listen well. And so he begins posing these questions and answering them. So he supposes that these wise people, both householders and contemplatives, will ask these monks, what is your teacher's doctrine? What does he teach? And Sariputta says, thus asked, you should answer. Our teacher teaches the subduing of passion and desire. And then they might respond with another question. And your teacher teaches the subduing of passion and desire for what? Thus asked, you should answer. Our teacher teaches the subduing of passion and desire for form, for feeling, for perception, for fabrications. Our teacher teaches the subduing of passion and desire for consciousness. So you'll recognize those as uh, the five aggregates. I'll have more to say on that later. Seeing what danger does your teacher teach the subduing of passion and desire for consciousness and all the other aggregates these people might ask. And then Sariputta says, thus asked, you should answer. When one is not free from passion, desire, love, thirst, fever, and craving for form and all of the other aggregates. Then from any change and alteration in that form or all the aggregates, there arises sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. When one is not free from passion, for feeling, for perception, for fabrications, when one is not free from passion, desire, love, thirst, fever, and craving for consciousness, then from any change and alteration, there arises sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, despair. Seeing this danger, our teacher teaches the subduing of passion and desire. And then they might ask, seeing what benefit does your teacher teach the subduing of passion and desire? Thus asked, you should answer. When one is free from passion, desire, love, thirst, fever, craving, then with any change and alteration in these aggregates, there does not arise any sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, or despair. When one is free from these passions, when one is free from desire and craving, then with any change and alteration in that consciousness, there does not arise any sorrow, lamentation, pain. And after 
giving these uh, responses to these monks. He stops playing this back-and-forth game and then simply speaks to the monks. He says, Friends, if one who entered and remained in unskillful mental qualities were to have a pleasant abiding in the here and now, unthreatened, undespairing, unfeverish, and on the breakup of the body after death could expect a good destination, that is Nibbana, then the Blessed One would not advocate the abandoning of unskillful mental qualities. But because one who enters and remains in unskillful mental qualities has a stressful abiding in the here and now, threatened, despairing, and feverish, and on the breakup of the body does not achieve Nibbana. That is why the Blessed One advocates the abandoning of unskillful mental qualities. And then he ends up saying the same thing about skillful mental qualities. If the Buddha taught, you know, if, the, if, if it was true that skillful mental qualities could be cultivated and we would still be threatened and despaired and feverish in this life and have no Nibbana to look forward to, then the Buddha wouldn't teach it this way, right? That's why the Blessed One advocates entering into skillful mental qualities because that is the guarantee of having mental, skillful mental qualities. So we see in this very short sutta the essence of the Buddha's teachings because Sariputta gives a very concrete and simple to remember answer. The Buddha's teachings are for dispassion, to abandon desire and craving. And it's done through cultivating skillful mental qualities, developing them, and abandoning unskillful mental qualities, setting them aside and eradicating them. That's the essence of the teachings. And all of that takes place in the mind and in the heart. Now, uh, last week, I, I remember uh, hearing someone uh, ask a question about uh, refuge, right? And I wanted to address that because I think it's important to understand in, in light of these teachings why refuge becomes important. So we see in, in this sutta, the, the Devadaha Sutta, that all of the training that we do is for dispassion to subdue passion and desire, and to cultivate mental qualities. But the thing is, when we hear it that way, when we hear mental qualities, we can sometimes think that all of this happens in a very intellectual way, that it happens in a very like, super philosophical way. And it's important to remember that in the Pali language, chitta, the word that's used for mind, also means heart. So we're taught again and again the importance of taking refuge. And if we understand it the wrong way, we might assume that the refuge is on the outside. That refuge takes place in outside forms, outside feelings, outside ideas and concepts. And yet the Buddha's teachings is always showing us to turn inward into the mind and the heart. Which is why you have some teachers, for example, like Longpur Cha, saying that the heart is a refuge, or sometimes the most important refuge, or sometimes the only real refuge. And there's a real reason why he would say that. For starters, 
Lungpur Cha or Ajahn Cha is very familiar with the idea that in Pali, Chitta is both the mind and the heart. That in the, in the Pali language, it's the same thing. There is no distinction between mind and heart. That what we develop, what we cultivate, we might say is the heart. And read that way, we see something, I think, especially beautiful and important to remember as Westerners. A lot of the, a lot of the time, people will quote the Dhammapada. And they'll talk about it in, in terms of qualities of mind, which isn't wrong. But if we understand that chitta can also mean heart, we might read the opening lines of the Dhammapada as follows. Phenomena are preceded by the heart, ruled by the heart, made of the heart. If you, seek, if you speak or act with a corrupted heart, then suffering follows you as the wheel of the cart, the track of the ox that pulls you. Phenomena are preceded by the heart, ruled by the heart, made of the heart. If you speak or act with a calm, bright heart, then happiness follows you like a shadow that never leaves. So seen in this way, the heart begins as our first refuge in the sense that we have to be open to exploring reality and exploring truth and wanting to quest for a secure happiness. And then we end up finding the Buddha as an example of true and lasting and permanent happiness. We find the Dhamma as his teachings. And we find the Sangha as a group that can support our spiritual growth, our maturation, our development of these qualities. And we take those into the heart. We take them inside us. And it's there that, that any change happens. Sometimes, especially when uh, Ajahn Chah was teaching this, it was very common to assume that Buddhism is about memorization. We got the lists of this, the list of that, the five of those, the eight of this, the ten of that. And if we think about it as just rote memorization, then we forget the value of turning inward and really measuring our hearts. Ajahn Chah also said that uh, the heart is the only book worth reading. And the reason why he said that is pretty straightforward. The heart is where we turn into to see those mental qualities, to see how they develop, to see how they rise up, to see how they change over time. We can even see this in the way the Buddha approaches the Four Noble Truths. A lot of people assume this is also like a really intellectual thing, that it's simply grasping a kind of knowledge. Yet there is suffering, it arises, it passes away. Hey, and also there's this Eightfold Path. But there's another way of looking at the Four Noble Truths as duties to perform, as activities that need to be done to find release. We can see the First Noble Truth needs to be comprehended. We need to understand dissatisfaction and stress. We need to see how it comes, uh, comes about. We need to see how it arises, and we need to abandon what makes it arise. The Third Noble Truth 
we need to actually cultivate those things that make suffering go away, that subdue them and subdue craving and dissatisfaction. And we develop that through the Eightfold Path. But the Eightfold Path isn't just an external thing. It's not only a matter of following precepts and memorizing rules and memorizing teachings, but taking them deep into the heart and looking there. So to go back now to that uh, uh, an, an initial question, the theme of, of today's talk, how do we know we're developing anything in this path? How do we know we're improving on the path? How do we know we're making any growth or progress? And it's often the case that people assume any progress they make, they're going to see on the outside. They're going to see it when they talk to others. They're going to see it when they go you know, to Thanksgiving with the family. And they think they're going to see it out on the street when someone cuts them off the road. And yes, you might see it there. But the real test is in meditation. The real proving ground of how these qualities develop is when you sit in, med in meditation. One of my big gripes about the way modern meditation is often taught is how it's this cut-and-paste, cookie-cutter thing. We all think that we can just hit a particular uh, you know, audio track on you know, insight meditation or go on to YouTube or we can go to a retreat where literally they just press play on a tape. And it's the same meditation for everyone. The same cookie-cutter techniques. You're going to breathe the same way. You're going to do this the same way. Everyone, rank and file, same, 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 same. And you go into autopilot. You don't really think about what you're doing or why you're doing it. You don't think about what kind of qualities, right? And I'm not trying to put thoughts into your head if you haven't done this, by all means. But I have seen it many times with many meditators is that they go to these retreats where they just hit play on a, on a tape and everyone just does the same meditation. Or someone takes a script and reads from it and everyone does the same meditation. And it's this rote, automatic thing that no one's really tuned into. And then you ask, well, am I making improvements? Like, is anything changing? And someone will answer like, well, you just do the same meditation. It'll, it'll take care of itself. Just do the same thing over and over and over again. Yeah, but this time this thing happened. Yeah, ignore it. Just... Same thing, rinse and repeat, every day, every day, every day. And like, maybe you'll see changes, you know? Like, maybe you'll be a little kinder to, you know, a relative. Maybe you'll be a bit more patient, you know, at the DMV. Maybe, maybe, maybe. Promises, promises, promises. But that's why it's important to remember that the heart, as a refuge, ends up being something dynamic and living. The reason why the heart is a refuge is because you take the lessons in that Buddhism offers you as skills, as tools, as techniques to strengthen you, to give you something to do in meditation. That meditation is not some automatic paint-by-numbers sort of thing where you just follow the steps every time regardless of what's happening. That there actually needs to be directed thought. That there needs to be evaluation. And then eventually things settle in such a way, but that doesn't mean that the mind turns off. Even if you studied the jhanas, you see that the fourth jhana is uh, the, the perfection of mindfulness and equanimity. And mindfulness, the way it's taught today, is this very basic bare awareness sort of thing. 
But that's not what we see in the suttas when we study them. And it's not what we see when we talk to very advanced meditators either. That sati, mindfulness, always has other qualities alongside it, like ardency and alertness. And sati itself refers to memory and the way we keep the dharma in mind as we meditate. So that means even in these higher states of meditation, there is still this reflective quality that's looking, evaluating, discerning what's happening in the meditation. So that's why if someone asks me, well, am I making any, any progress on the path? The first thing I ask them is, well, how's your meditation going? Right? It's not, hey, how patient were you at the DMV? It's not, how'd Thanksgiving go? It's really looking at the meditation how it's unfolding, day in and day out. That when you sit to meditate, when all of us sit to meditate, we are given tools like mindfulness and concentration. But how are we applying them in a useful way? And then how do we take those lessons that we get from meditation and then apply them to real-life situations? You know, there's this imbalance, I think, that, that many of us have where we assume that meditation is just this thing that we do and maybe it'll have some positive effects on our life. When it's far more connected than that. And if anything, what we do in our daily lives has a great impact on our meditation. And then our meditation has a great impact on our lives. So how do we see this pro progress? How do we mark this progress? We do the same work that the Buddha had to do. We look at the qualities of our mind as we sit in meditation, the qualities of our heart, which might be more important. I think sometimes it's important to, to pull down away from this intellect and really uh, come into touch with what we're feeling, which in Buddhism is, a, is also the mind. But how do we feel when we meditate? The paint-by-numbers style where you hit play on a tape and then someone comes in with, with actual concerns and questions like, well, just play the tape again. Hmm. How does that address what, what you're actually feeling? When you sit down and meditate, does the mind feel scattered? Does it feel lost? Is it going and grasping at things? Well, good. You're able to see that. What do you do with that? How do you bring that back to something more pleasant? something more peaceful. You'll notice that in this sutta I was sharing with you, the idea is that there's this concept of a pleasant abiding in the here and now. That's one of the benefits of proper meditation. They were able to find something that's really worthwhile, worth doing right now, in a good way. The idea that meditation is this you know, gritting your teeth and sitting there and, and, and suffering through it, and then maybe there's a promise of something better. No. See what you can do in the present moment to make it better now. What's happening in the body? What's happening with the breath? What's happening with the mind? What's happening with the heart? I think a lot of the time, the way we live with so much activity, that we're not connected to our hearts. I think that's why a lot of us reach out to meditation anyways, is to, is to connect with that heart again, to make it a, bo a book worth reading, to really delve into its pages, to learn its mysteries, 
and to align ourselves with something worth feeling. We want a pleasant abiding here and now. And it's easy to measure. When you meditate, is it a pleasant abiding? Is it something that that you want to return to again and again? Or is it like flossing? You do it because the dentist told you. And that takes real work. That's why it's cultivation. Chitta bhavana. Heart cultivation. Or mind cultivation. It ends up being that because you got to return and really, really dig up the soil. Look around. Turn it into something. You you know, many of us have a a full... uh, a full yard of weeds, and we want to turn it into a beautiful garden. So again, how do we see that progress? We check in time and time again. So I do want to reiterate this concept of the heart and phenomena. Because there is this current understanding in, in Buddhism that we're looking for a special kind of insight, a special kind of knowledge, and that when we meditate in just the right way, it's like we're like struck with lightning. This, this thing opens up and all the mysteries of the world are un- unfolded before us. And I think if, if we wait on that before we, we think we have found any measure of happiness or peace, then we're always going to feel lost when we meditate. That the Buddha teaches this as a gradual path because we, we slowly, over time, build up our happiness, build up our peace by developing these good mental qualities. That it's a gradual thing that is about our behavior, about our relationships, and not about a special kind of knowledge. In Buddhism, we use knowledge for the sake of dispassion. We use knowledge for the sake of abandoning unskillful mental qualities and cultivating skillful mental qualities. But the goal is not some amazing, like, all-penetrating insight. There might be, but that's not the goal. The goal is, as Sariputta says at the beginning of the sutta, that the goal of the path in its entirety is to eliminate suffering, the subduing of passion and desire, and that's what eliminates suffering. And that work happens inside. And if we want to mark the progress, we mark it through meditation in a way that's active and dynamic, not something static, not something rote, not paint by numbers. Meditation requires our our active participation. And that's why it's helpful to, uh, for starters, meditate more, but to go beyond simple memorization, but actual application of the Buddhist teachings. It's not enough to say, well, I follow the precepts, that's good. And like, I know that some things are unskillful, but like, well, how do unskillful things make you feel? How do, men- how do skillful qualities make you feel? How do unskillful qualities make you feel? Really feel it in your heart, the full weight of it. Are you pulling a cart, or are you followed by your shadow? 
That's the real measure of progress on the path. So I think I'm going to stop there and uh, open it up for questions if there are any, or comments, or any other things you want to discuss about the Dharma. I don't want to limit it only to this discussion if you have other questions. Thank you.